like the book of Daniel, the situation, the context finds the people of God in exile. Daniel uh, was in exile. We looked at that last week. And we said that during his reign, the Babylonians that were the world power eventually gave way to the Medes and Persians that became the new world power. And their, their king, King Darius, was the king that put Daniel into the lion's den. Well, Darius, his king, um, had a successor, uh, Xerxes, and it's Xerxes who is the king that we've been hearing about already in the book of Esther, so just a little bit later than the time of Daniel. It's very similar, actually, to Daniel in some respects. Uh, we could have almost mimicked the two stories together. This time also it is about people worshipping by saying yes and by saying no. Mordecai simply said when asked to bow, no. And we heard last time how Daniel and his friends over times in exile. And we, when we find ourselves spiritually in a, in a foreign land, have to simply say no. Equally so, we saw last week that Daniel had to say yes to the situation where God placed him. And similarly today, we'll see in a little bit more detail, Esther needing to say yes, not only to the place where God had put her, but to the opportunity to the mission that God had given her. So do you find yourself saying no from time to time? I hope so. Do you also find yourself saying yes from time to time too? So you can catch up on Daniel in uh, the usual place. But let's meet that king then, shall we? Esther 1 and verse 1 that succeeded Darius the king that put Daniel in the lion's den. We meet him uh, at the beginning of Esther chapter 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. A massive area. This is a world power of the day. And uh, the king, verse 2, reigned from his royal throne and that was in the capital in the citadel of Susa. So a man of immense power, ruling over a massive area, a king of influence, whose primary focus turns out to be his own greatness. You can see that in verse 3. So a couple of years in, got himself settled. He decides to throw a lavish party in which to invite the nobles and officials from all over the known world. And just in case there's any illusions as to why he threw such a party, well, verse 4 tells us for a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. This king couldn't get enough of his own importance. And so, a few verses later, he he used his wife, Queen Vashti, in order to promote himself. Now, I want you to try and imagine huge cultural distance now between the Medes and Persians and our present day. Can you imagine a middle-aged man taking a younger beauty on his arm as a trophy of his greatness? That's what he did. The only problem is when he called for Queen Vashti to come in order to celebrate his greatness and the grandeur of his kingdom and that he can still attract the young lady, shall we say, big cheer for girl power, she says, no. No cheer for girl power, though, I note. The king, verse 12, 
suddenly becomes aware of how abusive and manipulative and pig-headed he's been all these years and takes Queen Vashti aside in order to seek her forgiveness. No, no, the king became furious and burned with anger. And what happens next is hilarious and also without equal in the current climate our current culture. Totally clueless as to how to deal with his obstinate wife, suddenly men all over the room are pricked up their ears, suddenly clueless as to how to deal with his obstinate wife, he consults the wise men of the land. He makes his personal marriage a political issue and he says, my goodness gracious me, I've got no idea what to do. So verse 13, he consults experts in matters of law and justice. He spoke with the wise men who understood the times. I'm sure they will be a great help. 14. They were closest to the king, and they named them there, the seven nobles. They had special access to the king and were highest in his kingdom. Verse 15. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti? He asks. I can't do anything with her. There must be a law about this. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memucan replied, in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and all the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. Verse 18, they imagine the worst thing possible. Imagine the very day the Persian and Median women of the nobility have heard about the queen's conduct. How will they respond to all the king's nobles in the same way? What will happen? There will be no end of disrespect and discord. So there it is. Men ruling by control and fear. Something our culture knows nothing about. (laughs) The message translates it hilariously. If, um, well, I thought it was hilarious. Perhaps you'll just say, that's me, and I ought to get out, out more. Uh, uh, well, it says that, verse 18, the day the wives of the Persians and Mede officials get wind of the queen's insolence, they'll be out of control. Is that what we want? A country of angry women who don't know their place? <laughs> oh, these Medes and Persians were beside themselves at Queen Vashti. Verse 19, They come up with a marvellous solution. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of the king Xerxes. I bet you'll be gutted about that, don't you? Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all this vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands, jolly good, from the least to the greatest. So then, very pleased with themselves, the king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as proposed. Jolly good idea. We'll sort these women out once and for all. (laughs) Yeah, you're absolutely right, Bob. And that, in effect, is what chapter one of Esther is trying to tell us. But just before we leave chapter 1, what, what are you blind to? What, what, what are you longing someone else needs to sort out when really the trouble is with you? So, here we go. The king needs a new queen. So, 
He decides on a beauty contest. Let's get beautiful girls from each of the 127 provinces. And uh, the winner from each province can come before a, a, you know, some kind of panel or whatever uh, with the king. And eventually the king can select his new queen. So that's exactly what they did. Now, in the citadel of Susa, there was a godly man by the name of Mordecai who was looking after a young girl, his cousin, called Esther, because Esther had lost both of her parents. Esther was beautiful, we're told, and she'd won the local selection process and became part of the harem from which the king would one day choose his wife. So we're at verse 12 of Esther chapter 2. Before a girl's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil and myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness. The usefulness of this verse, men, is to put your wife's preparation in its appropriate perspective. She's just going Old Testament. How many of you spend longer preparing for a date than going on it? You little liars. Somebody's not telling the truth in here. Look at verse 15. The final part of this is the key to understanding the book. So don't get lost in your uh, Chanel perfume and uh, Esther Lorde makeup. Here we go. Verse 15 comes in for the, the kill in terms of a literary device being used here. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than that what Haggai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. Hmm, says the thoughtful reader. Imagine you're reading this story for the first time. You're caught up in the journey of the Jewish people. The way the writer just sort of introduces ever so gently, ever so subtly, Esther won favor. It reminds you of Joseph who gained favor in a foreign court. Reminds you of Daniel who gained favor in a foreign court. Very subtly and gently the writer is saying, look just below the surface, and you'll see God's hand all over this. And so what happened next for the first-time reader would have been obvious. Almost uh, uh, without doubt what would happen next is she's going to win this thing because what the writer is saying, she's won favor. God's hand is all over this. Something remarkable is about to happen. Verse 17. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. The king looks for a new queen and he finds one. But you as the reader are left thinking, why? What's God up to? What is he doing now in this foreign pagan land? Why has Esther risen to power in this way? It's a great question. And have you asked it of yourself 
recently? Why is this happening where God has placed me? Why is it happening? We usually make judgments about, I don't like it or I do like it, but a different question, why is this happening to me now? Where is the hand of God in what I'm going through now? If I look below the surface, do I find myself going, hmm, God's up to something here. No sooner has the reader begun to think, that God must be up to something, then the story gets a whole load stranger. Verse 19 of chapter 2, Mordecai, her mentor as well as her guardian, happens to uncover an assassination plot. And he happens to have the opportunity to relate it to the queen who passes it to the king, and the assassination plot is foiled. Remember Ruth, that book some months ago, who happened to go out one morning and happened to glean from the field of Boaz, and Boaz who happened to be her kinsman redeemer, and Boaz who happened to be coming in from the big city to inspect the fields on that day. Remember that? And you get that feeling, God's, God's not just distant, God's way in this. God's fingers are all over it. You get that sense with Mordecai here. He happens to be there, and then he happens to be able to convey it to the queen, and so on and so forth. What's God doing. Just contrast that for a moment by those people that were sitting by the river of Babylon that we talked about last week. Remember them? They're in a foreign land and they give up. This is hopeless. God can't do anything here. We can't worship here. We can't do anything here because this is not God's place. Every place is God's place. What's he up to here? And as chapter 3 unfolds, we begin to see why God maybe was already at work. You see, chapter 3 begins with an enemy, Haman, being honoured and being given a a seat, the highest seat almost in the land, the the, the sort of uh, uh, position equivalent of prime minister. And the important thing here is that Haman was an Agagite, one of the Amalekites. They were the sworn enemy of Israel. They were the only nation that God said, when you go into the promised land, you've got to wipe them out completely. And they never did. And because they never did, Israel had suffered decade after decade, generation after generation. And so what the writer is saying, of all the people that could rise to this position, you almost would not believe it. It was Haman, and he's an Amalekite. An enemy is honoured but God is ahead of the game. Okay, so we're introduced. Notice, notice how we, we, these things are, are revealed, unveiled to us. God can see it all. But first of all, we're led to understand that in this foreign land, God is already there and he is at work. He is there way ahead of Haman, way ahead of King Xerxes, way ahead of Mordecai, all of them. God is where you are ahead of you. Make sense? He's already there. He he never catches up with the detail like we do. God never goes, oh yeah, didn't see that coming. He's always ahead. So think about your foreign land, the place where God has placed you, where perhaps you don't want to be and it's not like in here, it is out there and you're going, well, what's God doing? No, he's already there ahead of you. An enemy is honoured, But one man says no. Very simply, Haman, 
now with this huge uh, position of power, invites everybody to bow down to him and acknowledge how great he is. Of all the people in the world, Mordecai cannot bow to an Amalekite. And so honor the Amalekites' God. There would be nothing uh, uh, more uh, uh, idolatrous for the godly man Mordecai than that. So he just says, no. When Haman, verse 5, saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Fair enough. A little bit mad. Kill them all. What's significant about this? We've seen this several times in our journey. This is another moment of what? What's the crisis of this moment? The Jews will be wiped out. What's the significance of that for us? Jesus. Yeah, good idea. The answer is Jesus. Always Jesus. Yeah, it is. That's Jesus. Imagine that the promise, Jesus is coming from this people. And suddenly the, the life of this people hangs once again in the balance. Notice the tension in the story for those reading it and understanding God's purpose. So Haman is bent on destroying the, the Jews. He goes home and he has a little chat to his wife about it and stuff. And uh, eventually, as we'll see, uh, he decides to build a huge gallows on which he hopes that Mordecai will soon be hanged. So we've got this scenario building where God has been way ahead and as you begin to see it, you can begin to see how, how God is beginning to place the people that he needs to be in the right place at the right time. Have you ever thought that God's positioned you for something? It's, it's, a, it's a tremendous privilege as well as a frightening thought, don't you think? Tremendous privilege that God should position Esther to be the single person capable in that moment of saving the Jewish race and the coming Messiah. But what a moment. No pressure, Esther. Feel the pressure. So we can begin to see what's going on, but will Mordecai and especially Esther see it? Question, will you see the mission? Will you see the mission for which God has already placed you? First big challenge is this, know your mission. Know your mission. You see, at first Esther didn't see it. Or maybe she just didn't want to see it. Mordecai can't see Esther, and that's how chapter 4 begins. Mordecai can't see Esther, but he can send her some messages. She's in the royal palace. And Mordecai urges Esther to take up her mission. So this decree has been made known by Haman that all the Jews should be killed. And we know how that happened from the, the story that uh, uh, Heather read to us earlier on. Haman went to the king and the king was only pleased with uh, pleasuring himself and his own glory. Yes, if it makes me look good, kill a lot of them, the king rather recklessly said to Haman. And so this edict went out to the whole land that every Jew should be killed. When Mordecai hears about it, He's in sackcloth and ashes. He wails loudly and bitterly, verse 1 of chapter 4, not surprisingly. But he decides to do something about it. And he sends this message to Esther. 
Uh, He gave the messenger, verse 8, a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Can Esther see it? Or doesn't she want to see it? Would you want to be Esther just now? Would you? What a privilege. What a responsibility. They come together. So so here the pressure's on. Verse 10. Then she instructed the messenger to say back to Mordecai, you don't know what you're asking, Mordecai. I can't possibly do that. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law that they be put to death. The only exception for this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days has passed since I was called to go to the king. The king's not pleased with me much anymore. He's gone 30 days and I haven't been summoned. He's not going to be pleased when I rock up. You don't understand what you're asking. And then Mordecai replies, verse 13, he sent back this answer. And the most famous words in the book. Do not think, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Esther, remember who you are. Remember who you are and maybe why you're there. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Isn't that brilliant? Esther, even if you fail, God's faithful. Tremendous words of faith. But, Esther, come on, you and your fathers, your family will perish. But, come on, who knows? Who knows? Just stop for a minute, Esther. Just look around at where you are. How come God's placed you there at this time? How come you're there at this very moment? Who knows? Maybe you've come to royal position for such a time as this. You're there for a purpose. Know your mission. You see, for all kinds of good reasons, Esther could have settled for a lesser mission. For reasons of her own safety, her own security, her own future, her own well-being, her own health, how easy it would be for Esther to settle for something less. And essentially what Mordecai is saying to Esther is challenging her about through these uh, exchanges, these messages. Esther, you've been brought to this point in your life, surely not just to look beautiful and to wear the most exotic clothes and to be the glorious queen of a pagan king. Surely God's got more for you than even that. Esther, you haven't come to this moment simply to be applauded as the most attractive woman on the planet, the Kate Middleton of her day. You've been brought to this point for a greater purpose. I want to ask you, has God brought you to the place where he's brought you today for something greater than you're believing in just now? And it would be so easy for you to settle for a lesser vision. It would be so easy for you, for your own safety, your own well-being, your own security, to settle for where you are. But Mordecai says to Esther, you've got a mission, Esther, and your mission really matters. It's interesting the way the story is set up, because it gives us two other main characters, the king and Haman, who both settled for a lesser mission. 
The king who ruled the known world could have used that opportunity for good. All he could think about was his own self-interest. Haman, who'd risen to great authority, could have used it for good, but all he could think about was his own self-interest and his own racial superiority. And now Esther faces the same choice. In the end, will she be any better or will she sell out to a lesser mission? You see, everybody's got a lesser mission. Everybody's got things that tempts us away from the true calling that God's placed on our lives and urges us to settle for something less. Adam and Eve settled for a lesser mission. All right, we'll eat the fruit. We'll see what that's like. It's another difference between good and evil. It was a lesser mission. Solomon, in the end, settled for a lesser mission based around his own pleasure. Jonah chose a lesser mission. I'd rather escape than see God give grace to the Ninevites. Pilate, when Jesus was being uh, 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 was arrested and, and tried, washed his hands. He abdicated responsibility. He settled for a lesser mission. Many times, God's authentic mission in our lives gets compromised because of our ego and because of our own self-interest. Across the whole of Christendom, especially in the Western church, we see again and again and again, young people totally on fire for Jesus. I'm sold out. I'm going to give him all I've got. And then ten years later, they've got married, they've settled down, they've got themselves a job, and it's all about their safety and their financial security and their stability. Their life becomes fueled around their own comforts and they sold out to a lesser mission. True or false? We see it again and again and again and again. This is Esther's moment. Know your mission. This church could so easily, could it not, fall for a lesser mission. How easy it would be to settle for our own safety and security. And in many ways you could argue we have. How easy it would be to be busy with our services and our our events and it's all about God so it all must be great and we've designed it for people like us and we meet here with people like us and we enjoy the kind of things people like us enjoy because we are the people like us. A lesser mission when the true mission lies beyond the borders of our community. What will Esther do? What will we do for such a time as this? Secondly, know your Mordecai. Don't settle for a lesser mission. And secondly, know your Mordecai. Mordecai would not let her off the hook. He was not very warm and cuddly when she said to him, Mordecai, you don't understand how hard this is. Mordecai didn't say, no Esther, it's easy. But Mordecai gave her a vision of something greater. You're a Jew, Esther. Look what God's done in your life. Look where he's placed you. Look at the consequences of of what will happen if you remain silent. I need people like that in my life. Or I'll settle for a lesser vision. 
You can't do that, you're a vicar. Vicars settle for lesser missions. All of the time. I need people that are going to give me a bigger vision of what God can do and stop me pulling into that lay-by. I don't think it's just me that needs that kind of relationship. I need someone who says, when I say this is getting a bit hard, this is getting a bit risky, I'm not sure I like it, I need someone who will give me a right boot up the backside and give me a vision of God who is bigger and has positioned me here and you here for a purpose. We're here for a reason, for such a time as this. And if you don't know who your Mordecai is, who, if you don't know who, who, who it is that makes you uncomfortable, then you've got to get one. Otherwise, you've surrounded yourself by other people who have sold out to the lesser vision. If nobody's prodding and poking you, then everyone around you is sold out. The reason Mordecai was able to prod and to poke was because he had not sold out to a lesser vision. All the other Jews, what had they done when Haman had walked past? They bowed down. Okay, they'd all sold out. Mordecai had not find someone who hasn't sold out for a lesser vision and stay as close to them as you dare because they'll prod you and poke you and you'll burn because they'll be on fire. Know your Mordecai. See, for two pins, Esther would have walked out on a mission. And if it wasn't for Mordecai being annoying and pushy, you know, it's not very Christian, is it, being annoying and pushy? I'm amazed how many times Jesus wasn't very Christian. Because he was annoying and pushy. At least he was in my Bible. He was cross and on a short fuse sometimes about their faith. We need people like that in our lives. So Esther gets this renewed perspective. And uh, here it comes in verse 15. Suddenly the light seems to dawn. Chapter 4, verse 15. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, all right, you win. I get it. I can see it. Whatever Mordecai has done, whatever he's been praying, something has changed for Esther. Verse 15, then Esther sent this reply, go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Come on, we're going to do this and we're in it together. This is the moment. Do not eat or drink for three days. That, that helps you find out who's in, doesn't it? You know, do not eat or drink for three minutes. Ooh, we're all in. 30 minutes, I'm out. Three days, night and day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king. This mission's on. I'm going in. And even though it's against the law, if I perish, I perish because God is bigger. Because God is bigger. So Esther, she's back in the game. And then as the book races to a conclusion, the challenge we see over and over again, the reason that Mordecai was in the game and the reason Esther could get back in the game is because they knew their God. And the challenge of these final chapters is whether you know yours when you're in the foreign land. Chapter 5 and verse uh, 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace, in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given you. 
There's another temptation, is it? To sell out to the lesser vision? Don't worry, Esther, you'll be okay. I'll give you half the kingdom. And great wisdom. Great wisdom. She says to the king, I know what, let's have a banquet. Two miserable men, let's feed them up. It helps. But more than that, Esther knew that timing is everything. Esther senses in in her spirit, is the only way I can express this, the only way I can make sense of, of what we read here. Somehow Esther, instead of being really encouraged that the king didn't kill her and invited her in, just blurt out the request, she's got wisdom. Mordecai's praying, the whole Jews are fasting and praying, and there's this clarity about what God is saying and doing, and she's got this wisdom, and she says, well, I just want you and Haman to come and have a party with me. And then they go to the party, and the king says again, well, well, what do you want me to do? And again, the temptation would have been perhaps to split it all out, but timing is everything, and she says, I want you to come back in 24 hours, we'll have another banquet, and then I'll tell you. It was absolutely genius, because in that 24 hours... Two things had significantly changed which would make all the difference. The first thing that happened was that Haman's fury at Mordecai reached new heights, verse 9 to 14 of Esther chapter 5. Basically, Haman uh, uh, gets mad about Mordecai. He goes home and he says to his wife, what shall I do? And she says, wow, jolly hockey sticks. Let's build a massive gallows and we'll stick him on it in the morning. And Haman seemed quite pleased with that idea. That's the first thing. Second thing that happens, and here we get again tantalizing glimpses of God at work in the detail. God there working it out, positioning things behind the scenes. Because it just so happens that night, the king couldn't sleep. Chapter 6, verse 1. It just so happened that he ordered, well, what shall I have, Mr. Men? Postman Pat, no, I'll have the book of the chronicles of the record of my reign. A king never losing interest in his own greatness. So they brought that book. And it just so happens that the part of that reign that they started reading to to, uh, the king was about Mordecai and that assassination plot that we mentioned some moments ago. And it just so happens that the king realizes that Mordecai hasn't been honored for saving the king's life. And it just so happens that the king decides, I'm going to honor Mordecai now. And at that time, it just so happens that who should be standing in the doorway? Haman. And he says to Haman, I want to really, really, really honor somebody. And Haman, so full of himself, thinks there can't be anyone the king wants to honor other than me. What would I like? I would like to wear the king's robe. I would like to ride the king's horse. I would like uh, a good noble to lead me through the town, shouting, this is what happens to someone who honors the king. And and the king says, that's a jolly good idea, Haman. Well done. Get Mordecai. Let's do it for him now. That's exactly what happens. Go at once. Verse 10. Go at once. And you get all this, it just so happens. Do you know in life it just so happens that God is at work even when you can't see it? It just so happens. Verse 13, Haman's wife and advisors can see that his time is up. And then chapter 7, they go off to the banquet. 24 hours later, it all looks so different now. The king is hugely disposed towards Mordecai. Verse 1, so the king and Haman went to dine with Queen 
Esther. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Again, the temptation, even half the king. The master says, no. If I found favor with your king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. At first, the king doesn't understand what uh, is being talked about. And she says, for I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Your honor. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. And so the story unfolds, and then chapter 8, the edict is repealed, and uh, there's some lovely verses in in chapter 8. Mordecai is honored. Look at verse 14, for example. Mordecai, who's always been just at the gate of the palace, suddenly because God has been at work, verse 14 of chapter 8, the 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 couriers riding the royal horses raced out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. God always honors those who never give up on his mission. I I can't tell you when, but he always honors, doesn't he? What do we sing right at the beginning? Forever God is faithful. Forever he is strong. And so we're urged to know that as we take on our mission, we take on what God has called us to in our day, in our time, we need to know that God is able. And you get to the end of these chapters with a whole shed load of questions. How is it that all the people in the empire How is it out of all of them that Mordecai should have been the one that foiled that assassination attempt? How is it that the king who should have been sleeping was awake that night and ended up reading his story in his own book? How is it that Haman had built a gallows for Mordecai but would end up on it himself? How is it that Haman the scheming murderer becomes the victim of his own scheme? How is it that that Mordecai, the intended victim, becomes instead his replacement in the royal court. How is it that the king's ring that was given to Haman ends up on Mordecai's finger? How is it that the noose intended for Mordecai's neck ends up around Haman's neck? How is it that the people who were marked for destruction, the Jews, survived and Jesus comes? It's faith in the end, isn't it? To see that God is at work. I want to invite you just for a few moments uh, now this morning for, for you to think about what your foreign place is. You know, it's the place that perhaps it hacks you off, you don't want to be. It's the ungodly place. It's the place where it's not what you would want it to be and all that stuff. And the massive, massive temptation for all of us is to assume that God works in here. I hear him speaking to me in here. I can love him and worship him in here. And God says, I I want you to do that out there. I want you to know and see me at work out there.
And so we have this book that never mentions God by name, but whose fingerprints are all over it. God might never be mentioned in your foreign land, your workplace, wherever it might be, but God is all over it. Unless you believe that God is distant. And the Bible never leads us to believe that. So do you know your mission where he's placed you? Do you know your Mordecai because you're going to need him? You're going to need him. And do you know your God? Who in 24 hours, if he chooses 24 seconds, can turn it all around. Because that's the God he is. And even kings and queens are in his hands. As they prayed, Esther got clarity and insight and wisdom. But notice that she only got that clarity once she'd agreed she was in. If you're waiting for that clarity before you say yes to God, that clarity will probably never He wants us to say yes, not based on the circumstances, not based on what he's asking. He wants us to say yes, because that's based on who he is and what he will do. And if you think it's all a bit hard and a bit unfair, and why couldn't God give us a break? There was one who had the most supreme temptation to sell out for a lesser mission. And there in the garden when the pressure was on, there were plenty of missions he could have gone for, but it was not the one God had given. And in the end he said, Father, not my will but yours. And he chose the cross. 